It is Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Fangraphs prospect analyst, the author of our uh, off-season organizational top 15 list, or off-season top 15 organizational list, Mark Hewlett. Indeed, Mark Hewlett. Uh, we talk in this episode not only about uh, some specific prospects, most of them playing currently in the Arizona Fall League, one of them in the Venezuelan Winter League. We talk not only about those specific prospects, but also, and I would stress this point, the issues that those players raise relative to the uh, larger concerns of prospect analysis itself. You will want to know this, the specific prospects, though, and I'm not afraid to share them with you. Uh, first of all is Atlanta catcher slash perhaps corner outfielder Evan Gaddis. Slightly old for his levels, but always hitting well. There is also San Francisco Giants quote-unquote shortstop prospect. Maybe he's a shortstop, maybe he's a second baseman. Joe Panic. what he's up to, he's hitting quite well in the Arizona Fall League, making a lot of contact, drawing walks, etc. He's only 21. Uh, going beyond that is the 19-year-old, or at least a player in his age 19 season, Javier Baez, shortstop prospect in the Cubs system, also playing quite well in Arizona. Again, as an age 19 player. And finally, uh, Jonathan Shoop, or Scoop, maybe it is, or Scope. No one really knows. He is a, a shortstop prospect, also though maybe a third base or, or second baseman in the Baltimore Orioles system. Part of that organization's uh, pretty excellent supply of infielders. Moreover, in what follows, uh, prospect analyst Mark Hewlett previews for us his top 15 lists, which are set to begin towards the beginning of November. Looking forward to that, of course. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's stop doing this. Let's introduce Mark Hewlett. This is, as I say, Mark Hewlett, Prospect Analyst. This is also Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. How do you feel like these uh, prospect chats have been going um, and... Uh, is there anything upon which we might improve? I'm asking this this cold. Um, nothing jumps out at me really. Yeah. Still, uh, you know, in the infancy stages of doing our chats. Right. I think it's going well so far. I think it's going well. I think it's going well. Uh, you, uh, I like talking with you, Mark Hewlett, because you speak in measured tones. <laughs> yeah, and uh, most of the people in my life, um, are just I find are just yelling at me. And so uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, I appreciate that. So, I mean, clearly I can assume you're speaking about your wife. Uh, my wife, yeah, uh, my wife. Um, but uh, most members of my family, most people, uh, even acquaintances. Uh, so is this, do you think maybe you bring this out in people? Uh, it's ridiculous. I just assume that's how the world is. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah, could be. Um, okay, yeah. Well, let's monitor that, though. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I feel like, on the one hand, we're talking about prospects. There are a number of places uh, where such a thing is done on the Internet. Uh, and uh, there's, I, I think there's probably a model for doing it. On the other hand, uh, I believe if we remain true to uh, Fangraph's mission statement, um, which is, if not explicit, is at least implied um, that we will – um, attempt always to ask the smartest possible questions uh, about whatever material we're covering, um, that, that we apply that as well to our prospect analysis. Um, not only to the analysis itself, but also the way we approach that analysis. That's fair? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And it's happening right now. That's what we're doing. There needs to be some sort of meta a meta critique as well as a normal sort of critique. That's all, always running concurrent to it. So we will uh, we will continue to keep that in the back of our minds. Um, you know, well, a couple things have happened since we last spoke, Mark Hewlett, uh, at least last spoke in an official capacity, is um, one, uh, the Arizona Fall League has started. I guess that's that's the major point that I care to make. I, a number of the other winter leagues have started. We uh, um, we did this sort of by way of preview talk about some key players in the AFL, players um, whose performances you would be tracking. Uh, of course, those other winter leagues have begun too. I'm curious to what value. I mean, obviously the the sort of um, value of the Arizona Fall League is pretty clear, I guess, for a prospect analyst because you have a lot of top prospects gathered in one place. It, do you have similar feelings about those other, the, the Caribbean leagues, I guess we might call them? You know, uh, I know, for example, Wilmer Flores is playing in the Venezuelan league, and, uh, uh, the, you know, there are other prospects of note um, in, the, in the Dominican league. I wonder, does that, do you track it at all? Uh, not really, to be honest. Um I think I, I kind of <clears throat> I tend to stumble across the stats sometimes if I'm uh, you know looking somebody up on like minorleaguebaseball.com because they usually have a line score for them as well. Um, so you know when I'm writing my top 15 prospect list, a lot of times I go to that website to get some of the biographical information of the players uh, and uh, you know fact check a little bit. So I see the lines there, and you know I'll read it and see, oh, is so and so holding his own in, you know, the the Venezuelan winter league or something like that? Because it'll it'll give you a good idea, just you know, not necessarily anything concrete, but if they're holding their own and they're they're doing well in a league, it, you know, it gives you a little bit of idea as to whether or not, um, you know, they're they're ready for maybe a promotion in the minors. Because if they're holding their own against, you know, in some of the where the guys are, you know, in their 30s, and these prospects are in their early 20s. It'll let you know, you know, how advanced they are. It won't give you too much idea. You don't want to really want to make too many decisions based on their strikeout rates or power numbers or batting average or anything like that. But it gives you a little bit of idea. Um, and same thing if they're struggling. You think maybe they're going to go into spring and, you know, maybe they're going to end up repeating a level or um, getting off to a slow start to the year. But overall, it, I don't read too much into it. Well, that's interesting. So, so a sort of window is what you're looking at to, to make sure it's not uh, probably too far from the, the mean of the league. Exactly, yeah. Um, I know that one thing that uh, I've talked – I mean, this is a this is a, 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 an idea that permeates all prospect analysis or ought to – is the idea of uh, age relative to level. Um and uh, I've, you know, I've talked about it with Mike Newman. Mike Newman has done some interesting stuff um, where he'll utilize the old um, splits calculator from uh, minor league splits that allows you to translate from one league to another. And, you know, usually you might do that by saying, "Oh, like this guy, you know, he had a um, he had a 15% uh, strikeout rate in Double uh, A. What is that roughly equal to at the major league level?" A thing that um, Mike Newman has been using it for is to go is sometimes to do backward translations. You know, I think we actually did, did it with uh, he did it with Nick Franklin. I think Nick Franklin was rather young, I believe, uh, 
but uh, as a Triple A player this year, and I think that what um, he was looking at was, well, you know, what if what if Nick Frank were an age age appropriate league? I'm curious just for you, because uh, I don't think I've asked you directly, but um, for you, just uh, I guess uh, your brief summary, your your thoughts on age relative to level and, and to what degree it informs. Uh, for example, the top 15 list that we'll talk about later in this conversation, uh, but that you, pr- you provide over the offseason. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess Nick Franklin's a good example because he was, you know, 21-year-old this year uh, when he played half a season in AAA. And I think the average age last I heard for AAA was around 26. So you're looking at a, a five-year age difference there. And, and that's a significant difference. And, and a lot of those players are... Um, guys that have bounced back and forth between AAA and, and the majors, so they definitely have a lot of experience. So when you look at the fact that Franklin hit 243 in AAA this year, it's it's not as big of a a, a deterrent in, in ranking him um, favorably, um, even though it was the Pacific Coast League where you expect most most top prospects to really rake there. Um, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan, I guess, of um, the splits calculators and and saying you know plugging in a number and saying well you know this is a somewhat accurate representation of what he'd he'd do in a in a higher level because there's so many different aspects and factors that go into how well a player does and how his tools play at another level that a computer a computer just can never tell you it's it's an interesting conversation piece or an interesting starting point I suppose but I, I really wouldn't weigh too heavily into that but I definitely look at age um, very uh, significantly when I'm ranking prospects yeah and um, I, I think that's I think that's probably how Newman utilizes it too is is as a means to I guess to make us aware because it's really hard like you say like a player like Nick Franklin uh, you look, you see the numbers. You can't escape the numbers. You know what I mean? I, I think that um, anyone who's paying attention to prospects in the minor leagues, um, regardless of the degree to which you rely on uh, on scouting reports, you know, you might even, one might even think wholly. It's very difficult, I think, to divorce oneself from the numbers. And perhaps the opposite is true too. Whereas you see, like a 24 or 25 year old. Uh, like in this, well, here's an instance right here. I uh, I saw this past week. I think it was a New York, uh, New York-based sports columnist calling for a trade by the New York Yankees of uh, Curtis Granderson to Philadelphia for uh, for Darren Ruff. Darren yeah, Ruff. I saw that as well. You saw that as well, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, perhaps I'm cherry picking. Perhaps I'm being unfair here a little bit. Um, now, uh, Darren Ruff. Uh, is a sort of slugging corner type for uh, in the Philly system, but I believe he was 25. He, he was in his age 25 season, and really, any decent major leaguer, especially a corner type, should be hitting uh, in the Double A Eastern League, I guess, at that point. So, but but again, on, on that same uh, by that same um, token, it's hard sometimes. And this is an extreme example, but it's hard to divorce oneself or to completely ignore those numbers. I think. Would, I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, I, I agree. Um, and it, you know, it, it's a really hard thing for people to to understand. Um, and that's one of the questions and the complaints that that I get every year 
in the comment sections on the you know the top 15 prospect list is how could you overlook so and so he absolutely raked in in low A ball well you know yeah he did but he also turned 24 halfway through the season so he shouldn't have been there he should have been two levels up and um, you know I had I had a few of those last year that really stood out and um, I think it was the Cincinnati Red system there's a couple of players that people really thought. Uh, I should have included, and I was an idiot for not including. And then this year, no one's talking about them, and there's a very good reason why, because they both fell on their faces when they got promoted. So, and I think yeah, that we should good. we should make it clear there are uh, other reasons for which you you might be an idiot, um, but that's not that's not one of them. Can we agree on that? Fair enough, and I'm sure my wife would also agree. With that. <laughs> okay. Um, it, well, and that's actually something that's happening uh, in the in the. Um, constantly now or has been going on for a year or two with um, one prospect. I, I don't know if you consider him a prospect who is in the Atlanta system, uh, uh, sometime catcher, sometime corner outfielder, I believe, Evan Gaddis, who's currently hitting uh, quite well in uh, in Venezuela, has hit quite well, but has always been old for his levels um, in the minor leagues, at least you know two, three years now. I'm curious as to how, and this is not scripted and not part of our plan, but just curious as to how you approach a, a player like Evan Gaddis. I think Evan Gaddis is a little bit different, though. Um, he's You could almost, uh, you can look at him as a guy who, uh, it's kind of similar to one of your man crushes, Colby Lewis, in that he's a guy who's a little bit difficult to get a read on because he kind of disappeared for a few years where Colby Lewis you know, went to Japan. Um, he left as a as barely a prospect, came back as as obviously a, a very good pitcher. Gaddis started off and and kind of walked away from the game for a while, and then came back. So he missed some key developmental years, um, but he also came back a much better player and an older player, obviously. So he's a little bit behind the eight ball. But I would say in his in his regard, I'm not as concerned about age and level with him obviously it comes into play a bit because you know if you've got a 25 year old beating up on a ball pitchers you would expect that to happen but with him the big i think the big um, knock against his prospect status is that he's he's not really a catcher um, and he doesn't really have the power to play first base and he doesn't really have the athletic ability to to be a, an average fielder anywhere else beyond first base, maybe. Maybe he'll, he could handle left field, but I don't think he's going to be even an average fielder there. So he he's one of those guys that's sort of a special case. Yeah, I think he was, uh, wasn't he, he was finding himself a little bit, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, right, and, and but I, that's, I mean, I guess there's also things here. It's like on the one hand, I guess it's a question of what your intent is, right? Because on the one hand, um, if your if your task is to decide whether or not Evan Gaddis is going to be uh, a great major leaguer or a serviceable major leaguer, that's one thing. And then I guess, but at the same time, there's this other thing going on where you can participate in the in the narrative behind Evan Gaddis, and that's a different way to uh, to appreciate a prospect's story. Just to like, I mean, the minor leagues. I mean, this is stating the obvious. The minor leagues are so much bigger. There's so many more players. There are more stories, and sometimes those stories are 
uh, you know, there's a greater probably diversity of stories than you find in the major leagues. Absolutely. Sometimes certain players are more fascinating for their backstory than they are for their abilities on the diamond. And, you know, Gaddis may end up being one of those guys. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him become a pretty good uh, National League uh, player coming off the bench, playing a little catch, a little first base, and doing a pretty good job uh, pinch hitting. Okay. Now let's return to the AFL, Arizona Fall League. Um, I'm going to ask you primarily about shortstops. Here's why. Uh, or at least uh, players who have played shortstop in the minor leagues and are something like prospect age. Uh, you know I do. Uh, I will occasionally produce for a number of different leagues what I call scout leaderboards, uh, the I, the idea being to combat the challenges of small sample sizes, especially if you're looking at like slash stats, right, where there's going to be a lot of fluctuation, um, where you look at uh, simply regressed home run rates, walk rates, strikeout rates for batters, um, and you come up with a sort of um, sort of OPS plus type stat or WRC plus type stat, just where 100 is average, above 100 is above average. I do that. Again, I, I I I don't know the effectiveness of this. I don't know if it's predictive at all, but it's a way to. It's just a way to, I guess, kind of to to uh, familiarize oneself with certain players. But uh, I just ran. I ran this morning for the AFL. Um, thirteen of, uh, or I should say, five of the top thirteen batters on the scout leaderboard uh, play shortstop. That's not necessarily to suggest that they will play shortstop if and when they make the major leagues. Um, but I want to start this discussion by, by asking about the shortstop prospect as a type, okay? Shortstops are interesting to me because what we say about them is that they have, you know, probably a higher defensive ceiling than any other type of player um, in terms of positional adjustments with the exception of catcher. Shortstops have the highest positional adjustment. There's a lot of value if you can get a shortstop who even hits only a little bit under league average. On the other hand, it seems like there's a danger because you pick a guy who maybe in the long run doesn't can't play shortstop because lack of arm or lack of range, etc. But then also he's not a great bat, and it seems like he can go from a potentially very valuable player to one without much value at all. That's how I'll start it, but I'm curious as to just how you view shortstops as a type, if they're sort of a league apart for you or if they're just part of a spectrum of all type prospects? Yeah, I don't know that I really um, single out shortstops in any specific way. Um, I definitely agree with what you're saying, though, about the, the value of them. They are one of the most valuable players, if not the most valuable player on the field outside of the guy on the mound. Um, and definitely you should be getting a pretty solid player at the shortstop position because um, growing up, that's where the best athletes play. Typically, the best hitters, the best athletes are all shortstops. And then as they move up through the, the amateur ranks and into the pro ranks, they they either stick there and or, or they move to other positions, sometimes out of necessity due to, uh, you know, a plateau of development or um, because someone a little bit better is, is ahead of them. Um, but yeah, it, there, it's definitely one of the key positions on the field. Now l- let's start with a guy who currently is uh, is second on these leaderboards I'm mentioning, and that is um, perhaps quote unquote, perhaps not quote unquote, shortstop prospect for the San Francisco Giants, 
Joe Panic. Uh, Joe Panic, a lot of his value, it seems, is in making contact, um, which is a good uh, good skill to have. Um, but there are those sorts of players. That, I mean, there are players who make a lot of contact and are near the top of the of the you know offensive leaderboards, and there are other players with that description who are also at the bottom of the offensive leaderboards. Um, I've also heard that maybe Joe Panic's life time or lifespan at shortstop may not be long lived. He's only 21, I think, or at least this was his age 21 season. I'm curious where Joe Panic is is fitting in for you, sort of the landscape either of shortstop prospects or prospects in the Giants system. Sure. So I'm fairly certain I'm I'm one of the prospect analysts who who likes Joe Panic probably. Um, better than most, I guess. Um, I I don't think he's going to be a shortstop, kind of like you alluded to. Um, it sounds like he's second base in his future, in, in the not too distant future. Um, and you know that's it's probably a position that uh, he could get to San Francisco playing. Um, they certainly don't have any roadblocks in his way that uh, come to mind. Um, He's a player I definitely like. I, I agree. His um, his best tool is probably his his hit tool. Um, his ability, you know, he hit uh, almost 300 this year. Although he was playing in the California League, which is a good hitters league, I think he'll end up being a pretty good number two hitter. Um, he doesn't strike out a whole lot this year. He walked more than he struck out, and so that shows his ability. He's got some patience. He handles the bat well. He, he can make some contact. So he's a valuable guy to, to hit and run with or who won't mind hitting 0-2 or, or behind in the count to allow the guy in front of him to uh, maybe get a steal. And, uh, you know, he's he's doing pretty well in the, the Arizona Fall League. He's got, uh, in 10 games, I think he's walked seven times and struck out just twice. Um, so he, he's definitely showing those skills on a good, uh, on a good playing field. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that, like, you know, this sort of idea of the number two hitter, right? Because on the one hand, there's the guy who should be the number two hitter. And I think that, uh, you know, research by Tom Tango in terms of um, optimizing lineups, uh, you know, the number two hitter is where you would want to put your your best hitter. So in theory, that's where you would put Buster Posey, right, if you're a Giants manager. And then there's the idea of uh, – or then, there, then there's who managers like to put in the, um, in the two-hole, which – Matter in the two hole. That sounds gross. What I just said, but that's what I'm saying. I have to say it. But it's uh, but there's the guy the managers like to put there. But you're right. I think like the this sort of profile of Joe Panic is like almost precisely that player, right? Where um, where he's able to make contact uh, if maybe he doesn't necessarily possess like a lot of other tools. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and you know he's a he's a nice player to have there too as well because he's he's a left-handed hitter, um, so uh, yeah. So Joe Pan, and and you said about his defense. Is it a question? What do we know about it? Is it is it a question of range? Is it a question of arm? What does that look like? Um, from from what I've heard, it, it's mostly a, a range thing. Uh, I think his arm is also average to fringe average. Uh, I'd have to look back. I I'm in uh, full uh, top 15 prospect list mode right now, so um, some of the, the finite things about players is escaping me at the moment because the Giants are kind of in 
mid-range for the uh, top 15 prospects uh, list. So I'm kind of heavy on some other teams right now. But I believe it's uh, it's short on range and uh, fringy arm. Well, let's get to a team that I, uh, I'm i pretty sure you're dealing with, uh, so far as the top 15 lists are concerned. Um, I think that you're dealing with sooner than later, and that is a Cubs shortstop prospect, uh, Javier Baez, um, who's also, uh, we're finding, um, he's uh, 11th on this list that I mentioned, um, not because of his control of the strike zone. He <laughs> he uh, has not walked, um, at least in, you know, it's just 50 plate appearances, but his walk rate is already uh, considerably lower than some other players. Um, he, he seems to swing a bunch, but he, see, he seems also to have posted not just so far in the AFL, but uh, various minor league levels, some decent power, especially relative to his age. He was only 19 this year. Um, what is uh, – is, I, I mean, I guess let, let's look at it with, you know, especially like sort of in relief against Joe Panic. What is the difference between Javier Baez, uh, shortstop prospect for the Cubs, and Joe Panic? I think – the, the big difference with the two of them is that Javier is going to have um, a much uh, more valuable bat. So he's the kind of guy that you could stick at shortstop, even if you're not 100% sold on the fact that he's going to be good enough to be an average to above average shortstop, and you're still going to get value out of him because that bat's going to make up for any runs you might lose on defense. With that said... I've talked to enough people this fall, uh, including a very, very smart baseball mind, um, familiar with him, who feel that he he is definitely good enough to to stick there and they don't have any concerns at all. So, um, you know, he's going to be at least average at at defense, I think, Um, and he's going to be a very good, very good hitter um, with, in his prime, you know, the potential to probably hit I guess the the scout I spoke with most recently said he has a chance to be a, a 60 or 70 hitter, um, and of course that's on the 20 to 80 scale. So uh, you can't get much better than that without being, you know, Jose Batista or that kind of player. Now, with regard to uh, to Baez and shortstop, uh, of course the the, car, uh, the Cubs have a shortstop. Um, his, uh, he certainly received some attention, uh, not generally positive attention for his defensive acumen, and that's Starling Castro. Uh, Castro does seem um, to have some upside with the bat still, certainly. Um, he makes a lot of contact, and uh, there's probably some power there because he's quite young, pa- uh, power to develop, I should say. What uh, I mean, how do you see the Cubs dealing with this? I mean, it, it seems like it's a good problem to have. Um, two guys who could at least play shortstop and also have uh, league average to above average bats. But how do you see this uh, working out? And, and, and are there any sort of precedents or are there any sort of uh, other situations you can think of that would mirror it? Um, I guess I guess you. it's kind of similar to what Baltimore has with uh, Manny Machado and uh, J.J. Hardy. Um, Chicago's in a similar situation. Um, you know, I would say that you could easily slot Baez in at third base, and he's probably going to have the offense to be an, an above-average player there too. So I wouldn't be too concerned about moving him. 
Um, and you could easily stick him at shortstop and move the incumbent over to second base, and maybe he can, he becomes a little more valuable, you know, if that happens. But at the same time, then you get egos involved. And uh, with Starling having sort of established himself as a big leaguer, he may not be overly thrilled with the idea of switching. But I think Baez is one of those players where his bat's going to pretty much play wherever you put him. And is he, I mean, you, you, you invoked Manny Machado there. What sort of prospect is he relative to Machado? Because I know that there's been some question about Machado's ability to stick a shortstop. J.J. Um, Hardy, generally speaking, has posted excellent defensive numbers. Machado's body is maybe getting towards the large side for that. Is that the situation with Baez, or is there something else that would push him over to third? Again, you know, besides the situation with, with Sterling Castro. The the thing with Baez moving is I, I think the big question is his range. Um, he's got good hands, and um, you know one of the scouts I spoke to had really nice things to say about his arm strength as well. Um, and, and he said that you know Baez is also works really hard at, at his defense, even though you know maybe it hasn't paid off as much as it could yet. So those are the kinds of things you like to hear. Um, you know that he he's not just focusing solely on his big ticket to a you know multi-million dollar contract, which is inevitably, inevitably going to be his bat. But he does have that desire to be better at shortstop. So you definitely don't want to move him off the position too quickly um, and kind of hurt his confidence or, you know, maybe rub him the wrong way because he, he is working so hard at it. You, you know, you want to kind of reward him for it. So it's a difficult and, and probably a good problem to have from a depth perspective. And and with Machado, um, you know, I haven't heard as much about him this year because he's he's not ranked it considered a prospect anymore so i haven't really been talking to anyone about him but uh you know last year um the the big thing was definitely as you said the size of him and and it's gonna more down the road i'm gonna limit him defensively with his range um he's another guy with a, a strong arm who can easily slide over to the third base and you know a lot of people, I think, thought he was going to open up, open up as a shortstop and move down maybe in you know five or seven years down the line he'd end up a third baseman. But if you already have a guy like J.J. Hardy there, um, you might as well have him at third base. You can move him back there later if needed and then and then readjust him again. He's He's got great makeup from what I hear, so he's the kind of guy that can be moved around and, and probably adjust accordingly. Uh, now, with regard to Baez, it was brought to my attention during – uh, Thursday night's uh, World Series chat uh, at the site, the sort of live uh, live blog event, whatever. Uh, it was brought to my attention that Javier Baez, um, again, who's hitting quite well in the AFL, play shortstop for the Cubs, has a tattoo on the back of his neck uh, of the Major League Baseball logo. Um, I guess there are a number of ways to interpret that. The way that I... Uh, it seems to be interpreted as that he's pretty confident that he's going to make it to the major leagues. Um, that would be a sign, I think, of hubris, maybe, or self-confidence. And I wonder, as a prospect analyst, what that – I guess something like what a gesture like that means. I, I mean, either it's meaningless, it's just part of this guy's, you know, whatever he's done, uh, His, you know, it's a decision – on the one hand, you could say, oh, like it's, a, it's clearly an indication of self-confidence. Or maybe, uh, on the other hand, it's overconfidence. Um, or maybe it's 
it's great confidence or overconfidence depending on how well he performs. Maybe if he performs well, you say, oh, yes, he's very confident. If he performs poorly, you say it's hubris. I'm curious as to whether that factors into an assessment of Javier Baez or, you know, any player who might uh, perform a gesture of that type of nature. For me, I think it's more humorous than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just thankful he didn't do it as a tramp stamp. Um, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should all be thankful it's on his neck and you know, not somewhere else. And uh, I think with him, maybe it rubs some people the wrong way because he does have a bit of a reputation um, for having some, whether it's maturity or attitude problems. People I talk to have absolutely no concern about that, but there's definitely that that feeling out there that he does have a bit of a um, an attitude, I guess, and that came up a lot at draft time, um, and maybe turned some teams off. So I think that's why that type of thing might rub people the wrong way. Whereas if someone else with a really good, um, you know, reputation, it, it would just be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Because that's, that's kind of the, the response I had after kind of having a good chuckle about it at first. It's a little humorous. And you're like, eh, you know what, that's, that's actually pretty cool. Um, it, if it, I was... it should be noted that his older brother, Rolando Augusto, uh, also uh, has an MLB tattoo on the back of his neck. Augusto was selected out of Union University in the 2002 draft in the 15th round, uh, played two years in the minors, and then uh, flamed out. Uh, so that's that's a that's less of a success story, perhaps. It, it's true, and, and I guess after that point, maybe you regret that sort of thing. But it, for me, you know, his his dream is to be a big leaguer, and I, I would assume that's kind of what that tattoo represents is his dream, not necessarily that he thinks I'm branding myself as a major league player because I am a major league player, and you know, I think that's pretty cool. Um, you know, maybe we all need to get, uh, you know, if we uh, meet up at the uh, the March 2013 Fangraphs event, wherever it happens to be this year, you know, maybe we should all get a, a Fangraphs tattoo on the back of our neck or, you know, dare I say, a, a Fangraphs tramp stamp. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. Well, it depends, uh, depends how much drinking we do, I suppose. It's true. And just one last thing I'll, I'll mention on Baez is, I, you know, I did get one scout to, to give me three words to, to describe Baez, and what he said was hard worker, fierce competitor, and confident. So nowhere in there were there any concerns about his attitude. Yeah, and I guess, scout, uh, I guess we're always dealing with, with well. we're 19-year-olds too, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you have to keep that keep that in mind as well. Yeah. Okay. The uh, no. What one team? Uh, how, where, where, where are we at for time here, Mark Hewlett? Uh, well, I'll delay uh, briefly by by asking, are you are you going to be able to make it? We've had three of these Fangraphs meetups in Arizona. Uh, you know, I, I, you're a family man. I understand that. Also, uh, I believe that the Canadian the airfares from Canada are not particularly uh, uh, friendly to the states. But I'm wondering, are we going to see you? Year four of our uh, yearly pilgrimage to the desert. Well, I like to to have this mysterious aura around me. Yeah, uh, you know, I like to be you know that guy. Um, but uh, yeah, that is definitely in the plan. Uh, hopefully this year to uh, to make it out uh, to the Fangraphs event. Okay, uh, let, let's discuss one more player, another shortstop, uh, and this actually 
will relate to a conversation we had about the, the left side of that uh, Baltimore Orioles infield. Um, another player is hitting uh, pretty decently in Arizona to start off that season, the Arizona Fall League season. Uh, also was young, also has played quite a bit of shortstop, some second base because he actually played alongside Manny Machado, is uh, Jonathan Shoup or John Shoup or, or Scope maybe. Uh, in, I'm going to call him Shoup um, if for no other reason than it is uh, reminiscent of a popular 1990s hip-hop song. Shoop, also called Shoop. Um, uh, Shoop is another interesting guy. Seems, I, I know less about him. He does have some physical tools, though, I think, uh, and has acquitted himself pretty nicely. Um, so how's, how does that work uh, with Shoop? 20, uh, de- decent offensive game maybe, and also uh, part of, uh, theoretically, of uh, the future of Baltimore's infield. Yeah, and I think he's another guy that, that fits in well to the conversation, especially that we were having earlier about age versus level. And uh, He's a guy that Baltimore has been extremely aggressive promoting, along with Manny Machado. Uh, and he was uh, playing at AA this year at the age of, I believe, 20. Um, and AA average age, I think, is 24. So you're looking at a, a four-year spread on that. And he, um, you know, if we're looking at some of the fan graph stats, he was... Um, just shy, very just shy of being league average um, on offense. So that that's encouraging to a degree. And then you look at his Arizona Fall League numbers, and he's been hitting quite well. Uh, so that's even more encouraging. I, I think they'd be well advised to have him start 2013 back in AA. Um, I think you're going to find that um, he was probably ticketed to third base with Machado at shortstop, um, sort of in the, the grand scheme of things. But again, with J.J. Hardy now kind of throwing a wrench in things, maybe Shoup goes over to second base for a little while. And then, you know, if and when Machado slides back to shortstop for a bit, he goes over to third base and you just sort of see the chess pieces moving around. That, I mean, that doesn't seem like a bad problem to have. I mean, I started this conversation by, you know, by invoking the idea of the shortstop um, and, you know, what could happen, uh, you know, the, the sort of ceiling that a shortstop might have. If you have an offensively oriented or, you know, a, a shortstop with offensive talent and also can handle the position, that's a great player to have. That's certainly a great player to have in your system. And um, what you're suggesting, you know, with the with J.J. Hardy's continued um, – um, proficiency, uh, the the maturity of Manny Machado, and now in John Shoup, uh, I mean that might be that's not, that's a good problem to have. I guess is the point. You have three guys who can probably handle shortstop, uh, but might also have the offensive ability to to move off of short to either third or second. Uh, that's not a huge problem. No, not at all. And you know you're looking at a team that made the playoffs this year, and you have to start considering the fact that their future is looking a little brighter a little sooner than you expected because, you know, by late 2013, maybe early 2014, like you say, they could have three shortstops in, in their infield. And that's that's an excellent problem to have. You know, it's interesting to bring up. I know that, uh, you know, your attention is mostly going to be on uh, minor leaguers and minor league teams. But that, that's a conversation I think I had with Dave Cameron recently is just how that might play out. 
in Baltimore because I think they finished, you know, something like 10 or 15 games over their Pythagorean win percentage or expected Pythagorean win total. And it might be awkward because they could actually be better uh, in terms of their fundamentals, right? They could be better in terms of scoring runs and preventing runs this season, uh, this next season, 2013, and still finish uh, with a record uh, that's worse than the one that they, they posted in 2012. And and I guess that sort of strange situation where it seems like they've actually declined, but in fact, the, the underlying numbers would suggest they improved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you agree with that? You think you, I do, yeah. you bow you bow to this point, I babe. I bow to your superior knowledge, Carson. <laughs> no, it's uh, firsts for everything, I suppose. Uh, hey, listen. So uh, let's just uh, let's look briefly at the your uh, what kind of schedule you might have for these top fifteen lists. These are always exciting, uh, mostly because they they serve as a pretense uh, for our readers to hurl invective at you. <laughs> uh, what is the uh, what is the sort of the, the the starting date and what's the schedule do you do you suppose throughout the off season? Yeah, so we're looking at uh, starting the the top fifteen prospect list the first full week of November. Uh, I think we're a little undecided. It's either going to be the fifth or sixth um, of November that they're going to start rolling out. the The first one is going to be the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm kind of using as a, a loose guide of what team. Uh, comes out when I'm kind of using a, a loose guide based on the 2012 draft and what teams kind of went over their um, spending slot the most. So the teams that really spent um, in, and utilized their money wisely, I'm, I'm going to write about them first and kind of work my way down from there. There's going to be some situations where I might um, switch some teams around. For instance, you know, sometimes I, and I've already found this, I've had trouble getting um, a hold of certain people I want to talk to, um, but then I, I end up getting a hold of enough people from a team down the road that they kind of hop over the other team. But we're looking at uh, two two lists a week um, for uh, four or five months, uh, so it's going to be a, a long road ahead. Um, and I think uh, you know the first five teams, subject to change, are going to be Toronto, the Cubs. Uh, St. Louis Cardinals, Boston Red Sox, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And uh, I'm going to be doing the majority of the the research and the writing, uh, but I'm also uh, happy to say that uh, Mike Newman's going to be uh, lending a hand and giving some of his unique insight and um, some of the other the other writers on the site that have a an interest and love of uh, prospects might be uh, chiming in as well. Yeah, uh, we do have a um, we do have uh, a growing core. Uh, Kyla McDaniel's been doing great work uh, mm-hmm. for for a couple weeks now. I ho- I'm hoping to get him onto the podcast. He's uh, it's been hard to get him because he's been analyzing prospects so hard in Florida <laughs> that it's hard to get him on the phone. Uh, but then we also have uh, JD Sussman and uh, Jason Catania over on the the fantasy side, and um, they have their own resources. It's a force. It's a force, yeah, it is a force. Yeah, it's a force. Um, I'm going to argue, and uh, this is this is right now we're combining uh, podcast with uh, editorial meeting. I'm going to argue against November sixth, uh, okay? Because that is the day of the uh, United States presidential election. Um, oh, so you guys are having an election, are you? Yeah, we're doing. We Jeez, need I, I hadn't heard of this. 
It's we not don't all just over let, the news or anything. We don't just let the queen pick. <laughs> That's not how we do it here. We fought back that lady. Good time. <laughs> anyway, uh, and we gave her an iPod. Our president gave her an iPod filled with hip-hop jams. Um, what else would you give the queen? Uh, what she wanted. Well, it's probably something really? she didn't have. I think you can argue for that. That's and she's true. a woman who has a lot of things. Uh, yeah, but that uh, the sixth is the presidential election, and I'm going to guess that um, while there will, you know, as always, there will be excellent traffic at Fangraphs, uh, that maybe some of our readers will be more distracted by the presidential or uh, related metrics, maybe uh, going to 538 and stuff like that. You're a wise man, Carson Sestouli. Yeah. And uh, I guess it, it's a good thing, too, that the uh, the first list going out is, is the Toronto Blue Jays, too. So I guess the majority of the readers will be of the Canadian persuasion. Yeah, well, actually, now that you mention that, it, no one's going to care. Yeah, although I guess Canadians <laughs> probably care because you, you'll want to know who will be president when we invade you. Is that right? Well, exactly. We we have to keep a close eye on, on, on yeah. you as Americans. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, as you should. I mean, because uh, I, I'm stealing this from a comedian whose work I saw recently, but I forget who it was now. Uh, um, you know, for the time being, everything's fine. But as soon as our resources run out, uh, we will be we will be visiting you. <laughs> we will not be friendly about it. Uh, what do you? How does that? What do you guys do all the time up there? You got um, like how do you? Do you have elections or or, or does the queen just pick? No, no, we we do have elections as well, and we don't have a president, but we have a prime minister uh, mm-hmm. who pretends to do, uh, you know, kind of the same thing. Now, what religion uh, is he part of? I uh, couldn't even begin to tell you. Well, he's he's a minister of some sort. I mean, is he? Uh, <laughs> is he? A... Um, yeah. He's, uh, his I, religion I, is being Canadian. That's right. The, yeah. the greatest uh, the greatest religion there is. Yes, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Um, actually, my wife and I have occasionally uh, talked um, in the in the event that um, we ever decide to, uh, you know, make our marriage official, physically speaking, and uh, uh, we have a child. Uh, I lobby. I have lobbied very hard on behalf of for a girl, uh, naming naming that girl America. I think that's a great name. Um, and uh, I mean, she's coming around to it. She's coming around to it. Well, uh, maybe if I have another child, I'll argue for Canadiana. Canadian? You could just do Canada, I think. Well, it doesn't have quite the same, uh, you know, vibrant ring night. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? Do you say Canadian geese or Canada geese? Uh, Canada geese. Canada geese, but Canadian bacon. Uh, well... I guess I don't really refer to it as Canadian bacon. Though. You just say bacon? Uh, yeah, back bacon. Oh, interesting. Is it? It's from a different part of the pig, then? I guess so. I, you know, I'm not a, a big connoisseur of the bacon, so I, you know, I may be the wrong person to ask. Oh, you're not. But you'll eat it if it's put in front of you. Uh, I've been known to eat bacon. Yes. Okay. You've been known. Stories. <laughs> Stories have been told. Yeah, stories. Uh, let's see. Okay. We did it. You made it through a podcast, Mark Hewlett. Wonderful. All right. Let's, uh, um, why don't you stick around for a second so I can harass you a little bit um, off air. Uh, but for the time being, I'll say uh, thank you, Mark Hewlett, uh, for your wisdom, uh, for your, your reason, 
and for your even Canadian tones. Oh, well, thank you, Kirsten. I guess probably next time we speak on the air, uh, the top 15 prospect list will be uh, will be up and running. Um, you'll have potentially a, a new president, so there'll be uh, tons to talk about. Yeah, there will be, and uh, I, will, I will delight in the, the uh, comments section of all of your top 15 lists, and uh, I will bring any and all objections uh, uh, to you directly on this podcast. I can't wait. Accountability is a beautiful thing. <laughs> that is Mark Hewlett. I am Carson Sestouli, and this has been a prospect edition of Fangraphs Audio. Audio.